Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Let's go to Revelation 22. We are at the end of this book. We have one more sermon next week. We'll round out the book, which is going to be so much fun. The week after that, September the 3rd, we start a new series called Practicing the Practices, looking at the practices or the spiritual rhythms of Jesus and how we need to incorporate those into our lives. And that's going to be so much fun over the course of a chunk of the fall to look at those different rhythms and spiritual disciplines that we can incorporate But today we're in Revelation 22, the last chapter of Revelation. We read these five verses last week and talked about them, but there was an aspect of these five verses that we didn't talk about that I think we need to give our time and attention to. So let's read them, and then we'll try to understand what this is saying. So here's Revelation 22. The whole book is unfolded. We now have glorified bodies. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. On this new heaven and new earth, there's a new Jerusalem, like this capital city. And this is describing this capital city here in verse number one. He showed unto me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, there was a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So here in this new Jerusalem, this capital city, it's not all urban. There's a river of life, right, clear as crystal, no pollution. There's the trees of life that are there in the middle of the street and on the sides of the river that are in season every single month bearing their fruit. You find that there's no need for candles or for flashlights or for bulbs because God is there giving the light, the glory of God making the way. But verses 3 and 4 where we started our journey last week, verse 3 says that we will serve him. Verse 4 says that we'll see him. That we'll serve him, verse 3, without the curse, right? That we will have in this new heaven and new earth jobs and tasks and responsibilities and things will be delegated to us and this will not be with the curse. There'll be no overwork or overload or overwhelming nature of our work, but we will serve God in gladness. There will be happiness in our jobs and we will serve him while we're there. This is This is why, part of the reason why, we worship Jesus. Because the greatness of Jesus was bound up with his service. He came to minister unto us and to give his life a ransom for many. And because of that, we say, he's great. And Jesus says, I want you to serve. I want you to be great, right? And it's it's so practical for this life and for the life to come. That in this life, if you don't serve, you'll become a very selfish individual. You'll become the spiritual dead sea that takes in all the time but never gives out. And because of that, things will start to die around you, namely your relationships. 
people that serve only themselves end up being all by themselves one day. And you don't want to be that person. You want to have a habit now of serving. You want to go by a table and jump on a team and serve the Lord through your local church. You want to do that. But even in the life to come, we know that God's going to grade on a serve curve. And he's going to look at who did what for him. Who gave a cup of water in my name? Who gave a meal in my name? Who blessed people in my name? Who cared for an orphan in my name? Like God cares about that now and in the future. So serve. But verse number four tells us not only will we serve him, but we will see him. Think about that, that we are going to see him face to face. And understand, when you see him face-to-face on this day, there's no eye rolls. There's no scoffs or scowls. There's no remarks that are going to cut at you. Why don't you do better? Right? That's not this day. This is not the day of, I gave you so much. Why would you have so, much, so, so little faith? Like, what was your problem? Don't you think you could have loved me a little more? Don't you think you could have served me a little more? What were you thinking? You an idiot? Like, that's not this. This day is not the day where there's a lecture to be given to you or somehow you're going to rehash your mistakes. No, enjoyment of his presence face to face, right? If Revelation were a mine, you could get many things out of it. But this here, I believe, chapter 22, verse 4, is the vein of gold. Like when you hit this, you are getting at the core of what we want to talk about when we think about eternity, Because as important as it is to think about streets of gold and mansions and even that will serve him, those things are not the real reward of heaven. The real reward of heaven is the presence of God. We get to be with him, right? You say, what do you mean the reward is the presence of God? Don't we already have the presence of God? Yes, in a sense. And some people get messed up by this because they think the presence of God is like a gas that is diffused evenly, like through the world, like God's omnipresent. God's present everywhere. So if God is already present, how am I getting more of his presence, right? Well, if you think of God like a gas diffused, it won't make sense. But if you think of God as a person, which you should, because he is a person, then it makes complete sense. Right now, this service is being live streamed. So I'm not sure which camera's on me, but to all the people that are watching at home, hello. They are experiencing my presence. But I hate to break it to you, live stream. You're not experiencing my presence in the same way that the people in this room are experiencing my presence. There's something about being in the room. There just is. There are certain things that do not translate on the camera. They just don't. And when you're together, it's presence in a different way. But if those of you that are here sitting were to greet me in the lobby and shake my hand and face-to-face smile and tell me about your week and ask how the family is, you would get to experience my presence today in an even grander way, right? Not that I'm grand, but a fuller way. But if you came home with me this afternoon and sat at the table and ate lunch and watched us send the kids to go take a nap and we hung out for a while you would experience the presence of Mark in a way that was even fuller than if you were greeting me in the lobby or sitting in the, in the seat or watching on live stream, right? You get it? Who's experiencing my presence? Well, everyone is in that scenario. But there are almost gradations or levels, right? God is omnipresent. 
In a, in a certain sense, you could say that the world gets to experience God's presence. He, he is there. You can't even see God revealed through creation. But those that are saved get to experience his presence in a fuller way, right? We have the spirit of God that dwells in us, and we get the presence of Jesus via his spirit. But there is an even grander, fuller, greater manifestation of that that Revelation 22 is trying to describe to you. That on this day, it will be an upgrade, as it were. And maybe the best example you can get of this is Moses. Moses, in Exodus chapter number 33, he ends up experiencing God's presence in a way that the children of Israel do not get to. So the children of Israel have the presence of God, right? There's this uh, pillar of fire, and there's this cloud, and they're being led by God in a way that their uh, pagan counterparts are not. But Moses gets it in a way that they don't. He goes up into a mountain, and God reveals himself to him, and God, I'm paraphrasing, says, Moses, your little body ain't going to be able to handle this, so let me tuck you in the rock. And he goes by, and Moses gets to peek out, and he gets to see, like, the back part of God. And we're told that even that experience of his presence makes Moses glow, right? He comes down the mountain, and they have to put a veil over his face because he had been that close. He didn't get to see God face-to-face as we will on this day, but he had been that close. And what, what the Bible teaches, more or less, is that the children of Israel got the kind of the rule parts of God's presence. Moses got the suburbs of God's presence, but he never got to really go downtown. And he longed for it. And what this is saying is that there's coming a day where we not only serve God, but we go downtown. Like we get to experience his presence face to face. We get to be with him. We get to commune with him. David said it this way. David said, Lord, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Like, I don't know how to describe this. Other than that, it's joy that's just explosive all over the place, right? I don't know if there's any uh, uh, Trekkies in the room, if there's any Star Trek fans in the room. If there are any Trekkies, be bold enough, raise your hand. Let's see you. Raise them like this, if you would, okay? Or is it like that? What is it? May the force be with you. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding. I know I'm messing with you. I'm messing with you. I know it's Star Wars. I'm not a Trekkie. But there's this moment, from what I understand, in Star Trek Generations, the 1994 film, where Captain Picard is having this new planet called Nexus described to him. And this is a quote from the movie I want to give to you. I, I think it's, it's telling. They tell Picard, this planet, it was like being inside of joy. It was as if joy was something tangible you could wrap yourself up in like a blanket. Now, I don't believe in Nexus, okay? I'm not a Trekkie. But I think that may be a fitting description of what it would be like to see God face to face. It would be like being inside of joy. As if joy was something you could wrap yourself up in like a blanket. And your presence is fullness of joy. And the Bible goes to great lengths to describe in terminology that you would almost think is like hyperbole or exaggeration. What it is like for us to know God. To commune with God. To seek the face of God, to experience one day being face-to-face with God. 
And I want to share a little bit of that with you this morning, and hopefully you can pursue it more because of what the Bible says. One author went so far as to say that this idea of seeing God face to face is something that if you don't get excited about, you, you don't understand Christianity or Revelation. He put it this way. He said, this is the strand that unravels the knot. You ever had that where there's something that's bound up? Maybe it's your hose. Maybe it's a, a, an extension cord. Maybe it's a jewelry like a necklace. My wife is amazing at untangling her jewelry. And if she ever is, gives it to me to do, it is an exercise in futility. I cannot do it for the life of me. Every time I'm pulling, I'm tugging, I'm trying, and I can't do it. And then she finds that one strand where all the tension is, and she pulls that, and the whole knot unfolds, right? And everything now is cohesive, and everything is good. And the author said this idea of relationship with God, of pursuing God, of knowing God, of being face-to-face with God, this is the strand that unravels the knot of Christianity, Like, if you don't get this, then you miss the whole thing. And I think he's right. Like, if Christianity were a philosophy, then you could come to it with your questions first. If Christianity were a therapy, you could come to it with your needs first. If Christianity was just a bunch of rules, you could come to it with the do's and don'ts first. But if Christianity is a relationship, and it is, you come to a person first. And there there are rules to help you guide through life. There are even therapy, so to speak, to help you with your needs so that you can find freedom, so that you can have joy. There are questions that the Bible will answer. But it's not a philosophy. It's not a philosophy either. I said philosophy. It's not, it's not a therapy. It is a relationship with God. It is the idea that one day we will see him face to face. That's what it's all about. Jesus said it this way when he prayed. He said, this is life eternal. What's life eternal? What's eternal life? Well, here it is. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The very definition of eternal life is knowing God. Knowing God's what it's all about. And I see and I I grieve for people that make this mistake because I'll confess, I made this mistake myself. There are people that come into Christianity and they understand what would be uh, the diving board to get you into the Christian pool. They understand the gospel. They understand that Jesus came for me and Jesus died for my sins and Jesus was buried and he rose from the dead. And if I'll put my faith in him, he will save me from my sins. He will redeem me from my sins. He will give me eternal life. Like they understand that. And they put their faith in Jesus and they trust him. But then they think the Christian life is like, okay, well, I got some resources now. I got a Bible and I got prayer and I got a church, which is true. But I got this Bible to tell me like the owner's manual for life. Here's how life works. Do this, don't do that. And it will help me like not step on some landmines. And I got prayer. You know, prayer is about uh, asking and receiving. So I get to rub my little magic lamp of prayer and I get to ask God for something. And he says yes because I pray in Jesus' name. Cool. And then I got a church. And man, that's fantastic. Because I love pickleball and I love volleyball and I love basket weaving and I love whatever else. And now I get to do it with, with moral people. 
I don't have to go to the YMCA or the country club to do it anymore. Now I get this community where I get to do life and I just get to have fun and, and hang out and you go on a picnic. But I get to do it around people that are clean and they act like me and they talk like me and they look like me and we all kind of on the same page. And that, that makes me feel real good about sending my kids into the environment and all those sorts of things. And they take salvation and then they take the Bible and prayer and church and they make it, they confuse it. I did this for a long time. I messed it all up. The Bible has do's and don'ts. But the core of why the Bible exists is to show you the nature and the character of God, specifically that he loves you enough to save you, and the plan of redemption. And it's to show you Jesus, and it is meant to draw you into relationship with Jesus. This is why when Jesus in his resurrected body begins to teach people, there's like these light bulbs that come on. Where he's like, you know all that stuff? It was about me. Like it talked about me and it meant to, it meant to show you me and, and draw you to me. And it was this aha moment. And prayer is more than asking and receiving. There's a space for that, certainly. I'm not saying don't ask God for, for your needs or don't give him your heart or your request. But there's a very real component of prayer, if not the primary component of prayer, that is you just talking to God and having relationship. Not bless me, feed me, help me, but like I want to be with you. And I want to I be vulnerable with you and I want to tell you how I'm feeling. I want to commune with you. And the church is far more than a little club for us to do things together with moral people. The church is meant to be we get together and we worship God. We take an expression of our love and we sing it, we declare it, we even give out of, out of love or we serve out of love and then we take that into the world and let the light of, of Jesus shine to the world. Like there's so much more to Bible and to prayer and to church that is all meant to drive you into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it's, that's what it's there for. And if you miss that, you are tugging at the knot and you're making it worse. you got to pull the right strand. And the strand is, make no bones about it, unequivocally the strand is, relationship with God. This is eternal life, that they may know you. They may have relationship with you. And Jeremiah would go so far as to say, this idea, there's nothing better. Jeremiah says it in these... In, terminology that is so beautiful and so wonderful, where he says, there's nothing better than this. He says it this way. He says, thus says the Lord. These are God's words. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understands and he knows me. You get that? What is he saying? He's saying, what if you were the wise man? What if you were the wisest person on the earth? What if you had the, the highest IQ out of any individual on the earth? I'll, I'll do one better. What if you had the highest IQ and EQ at the same time? You were not only wise, you were emotionally intelligent. You were the most intelligent person, and everyone agreed to it. That'd be pretty cool, right? Put that on your resume. The whole world knows I'm the smartest. Like, that'd be awesome. What if, what if you had might? What if you had athletic ability? What if you were a national treasure and you had gold medals draping around your neck from the Olympics? You're Michael Phelps. Wouldn't you love to have your child be Michael Phelps? That'd be awesome. 
To say, my kid has all these gold medals and is an Olympian and has represented our country, like, we, we would find some sort of glory in that. What about the riches? What if you were the richest person on the earth? Now, combine them all. What if you got $100 billion to your name, you got 10 gold medals draping from your neck, and you're the smartest, most emotionally intelligent person on the whole planet? You'd say, I, that would be pretty special. Here's what Jeremiah says. It ain't worth nothing. You know what's worth something? Let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows God. Here's what Jeremiah says. Better than the money and better than the achievements and better than the intelligence, better than all of it, is that somebody would know God. And if you ask someone who's done both, find someone that really knows God and has accomplished success in business and ask them if they had to, if they had to cut one, you got to get rid of one, which would you get rid of? If they know God, they will tell you every time, I'll get rid of the money and I'll keep my relationship with God. Find someone that has, uh, they're at the peak health. They have, they have everything that you would want physically. And they know God and ask them if they have to get rid of one. What are you getting rid of? They're getting rid of their health and they're keeping their relationship with God. Why? Because there's nothing better. That is what is the focal point of Christianity. That's the, that really is the epicenter of heaven. More than mansions, more than streets of gold, more than gates of pearl, more than even relationships with other people that have gone before us is this idea that there's nothing better than knowing God. There's nothing better than seeing him face to face. So here's the challenge. The challenge is that you would become very, very good at spiritual hide and seek that you would get very good at playing the game of spiritual hide-and-seek. And here's how you win the game. You do not hide, but you do seek. It's that simple. You want to know God? Don't hide, do seek. That's it. Some of us, our biggest hindrance to relationship with God and communion with Him is that we hide. And you know why you hide? The same reason... God's children have hidden from him for a long time. Sin. Isn't that the Adam and Eve story? They're in the garden. They have communion. They sin, and God comes looking. And communion is still available to them. And what do they do? They exhibit hiding behavior. They start ducking behind bushes and trying to escape his voice and trying to escape his presence. Why? Because there was sin. Some of you have a desire for this, but you've never really connected the dots to your desire for this and your desire for that sin are in competition with each other. And until you kill that sin, you're going to really stink at hide and seek. You're going to hide from them over and over and over again. And some of you, the best thing you could do for your relationship with God this morning is go find a, a, a sin and murder it. And say, look, I'm, I'm done. I need his help to do this, but I'm done, right? Paul even went so far as to say not just the sin in his life, but also even the weights that beset him, that he was going to try to chuck those to the side, right? There are some things that are sinful that will keep you from communing with God and having the presence of God like you need. The relationship with God will be strained because you're sinning and you're not confessing that sin. But there are other times where you do things that aren't sinful, they're just dumb. They just don't serve you well, right? 
You ever notice that? There's a lot of those things. And as a pastor, I've, I get tickled sometimes because people will say, well, it's not a sin. Well, you know, eating poison ivy is not a sin. It's just stupid, right? <laughs> like there are certain things that aren't sinful. They just don't work. And you've got to know those. You have to take inventory of those. And honestly, yours are different than mine, so I'm not going to even try to presume to give you a list. But there are things in your life that aren't wrong. Maybe they're in a gray area or maybe they're clearly right. But when you do them too much or you give too much time or too much attention, they begin to rob you of relationship with your heavenly father. And that's backwards. Like our relationships with our spouse or with our children or with our parents or with our friends are all very important, but there can be a time where you give so much time there that you actually rob yourself of a relationship with God, and that's a problem. Good things can be a distraction if you're not careful. I am all for you showing up to work on time, working hard, killing it, succeeding, going up the ladder and taking whatever perks come with that, the status, the connections, the money, and leveraging that for Jesus. But if you throw yourself headlong into work so that you now have no time and space and margin for solitude or for prayer or for Bible study, or now I'm working too much so I can't be in a group. I'm working too much so now I can't serve on a team. I'm working too much so now my relationship with God suffers. You're losing the game. You're losing the game. Things that are good can, cannot serve you well and can start to make you hide. So be very good at hide and seek. Don't hide. Kill the things in your life that make you hide from God. But then seek. Be very good at seeking. You don't want to stay in a middle ground where, okay, I'm not hiding, but I'm not pursuing either. And here's the deal. You know how to do this. I don't know, how, how, do I, how do I figure that out? Listen, it's a relationship. All of us understand what it's like to pursue someone in a relationship, especially those of you that are married. What, what happened in your relationship to get to a point where you're at a wedding altar and she is now committing to you She's, she's going to swear off all the other men in the world for you. And when she swears off all the other men in the world, that's including her own dad, right? Like how do you woo her to the point where mom and dad give her away and now it's just you and nobody else? I don't know what all was involved there, but unless you had an arranged marriage, which is probably no one in this room that's not normal in our culture, you know what you did? You pursued a relationship. You were seeking them in ways that you probably don't even want to tell everybody, right? You saw them in English class, and then wouldn't you know it, you just so happened to be by each other in the lunch line. Oh, coincidence. Now, you, you and I both know you planned that. You were, you were over in the corner hiding behind a bush like a creeper and you, and you arranged it to where you got right next to her at the right time because you wanted to seek her, right? And by the way, I'm not recommending stalking for the record. But you know what you did. 
You tried to arrange it. You tried to be by each other. Then you, then you were overt about it. Hey, let's go on a date. Hey, uh, let, let's do this. Then the first date, and then you're, you're texting or you're calling, or you're asking for the second date. What are you doing? You're pursuing a relationship is what you're doing. And you're giving time. You're being transparent. You're being vulnerable. You're making commitments. You're doing what happens in a relationship. It's the same thing with your relationship with God. You pursue him, you give him time, you open your heart, you start to be vulnerable and tell him what's going on and that you need his help. You make commitments to him, you, want, you take what would please him and you put that kind of in front of what would please you. Like this is what happens in relationships. It's not that complicated. You have the skill set to do it. So pursue him. And might I add, pursue his face. You will see him face to face which means today you pursue his face. And here's the mistake people make. We pursue his hand a lot, but his face a little. Don't do that. Pursue his hand. There's a space for that. But pursue his face more. This is exactly what God told the children of Israel, if you remember in Chronicles. That if the people which were called by his, by his name, right, would humble themselves and pray, and they would, they would confess of their sin, right, and seek his face, then he would hear from heaven. He would heal their land. Things would go back in the right order if they would stop hiding and repent of their sin and start to seek his face. So seek his face. Parents, I think you understand this, right? All the parents in the room, let me get a raise of hands. Roll count on the parents. Worst case scenario for your children is that they take your instruction, they take what you've given to them, they take all, all the benefits you've tried to afford them, and they say, I don't want it. I don't want to listen to your instruction and your words. I don't care about it. I don't, wanna, I don't, I don't need what you have to offer me. I'm gone, and they don't, they don't call. They don't come home. They don't care about the holidays. Some of you live in these moments, and you know how painful it is. That's worst case scenario. In the middle is this idea where they seek your hands. They're there, but they're there because you're given to them, right? Listen to me. If you don't do this, then I'm telling you, I'm taking your cell phone away. And so they comply because your hand gives them cell phone. I'll take those keys. That title of that car is on my name. It's my car. I'll take them back. So you have this relationship where they are there and they're listening to your word and they're complying to a degree because of what you'll give to them, right? Well, that's better than not listening at all. But the best case scenario, every parent in the room knows it. Hey, mom, what's up? Oh, nothing. What do you need? Nothing. I just want to check in. How you doing? I just want to talk to you. Dad, you want to go fishing tomorrow? And there's no hook. There's no, there's no ask. There's no I need. There's just, let's go spend some time together. Every parent knows. That's what I want. Yes, I want them to listen to my words and receive my instruction and, and, and honor me and respect me. But I also want them to seek my face. I want them to have relationship with me. You think maybe we're made in God's image? Think perhaps we tick that way because God ticks that way? There's a day coming where you will see him face to face, but pursue him now. Seek his face now. 
be very good at hiding, or not hiding, excuse me, and be very good at seeking. Here's my last point, and I'm going to get you out early so you can sign up at the table, and then you can get in, into a group or into a team. John, who wrote Revelation, wrote about this experience in 1 John. And the words that he puts around it never cease to amaze me. Here's what he says in 1 John chapter number 3. He said, Beloved, we are now the sons of God. And I love that. Look, I'm not talking about something future here. I'm talking about present tense. We are the children of God now. But it does not yet appear what we shall be, okay? Now we're the sons of God. And we will be in the future too, but we are now. But there's something coming down the pipe that hasn't appeared yet. This is going to be new. This is going to be fresh. And we don't get to experience it just yet. But we know that when he shall appear, we're going to be like him. And listen to this. We're going to see him as he is. You can put it this way. We will see him face to face. There will, there will be nothing to distort him. There will be nothing to hide him. There will be no veil. There will be, we will see him as he is. And here's what he says. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. What John says is this experience of seeing God face to face as he is is so transformative that just to hope for it today, just to want it today, just to long for it today will purify you even as he's pure. Like this, this moment will be so transformative, the Revelation 22.4 moment, that if you hope for it now, it will start to change you. You get that? Like John is saying as, as best he can, long for this, yearn for this, Put this in your mind. Get a vision of this, what it will be like to be wrapped in a blanket of joy in front of him face to face without an eye roll, without a lecture, to know him and to love him and to commune with him in a way that is so full and so rich. And that is the vein of golden revelation. When we get to go downtown, when we get to experience God in that way, and I want to encourage you as best I possibly can this week to push into that. To take the things that make you hide and get rid of them. And take the things that make you seek. Maybe you want to listen to some music and sing to him. Maybe you want to read the story of the cross and thank him. Maybe you want to pour your heart out and just be vulnerable and say, this is what I'm going through and this is what I'm struggling with. And God, I don't even know what to do. I just want to tell you. But as best you possibly can this week, seek his face. Because there's coming a day where you're going to see him face to face. And it's going to be so good. You will know Jesus better, but you're never going to know anything better than Jesus, right? You'll know him better one day. Maybe even next week. But you'll never know anything better than him. Jeremiah said it best. Glory in that. Glory in that and pursue it.